Welcome to the secret life of cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. My guest this week is Ayelet Waldman, the New York Times bestselling author, and also the creator and writer behind the Netflix Emmy award-winning series, Unbelievable. And speaking of unbelievable, come on, who could miss an obvious segue like that one? Unbelievable is the range of topics Ayelet and I get to as we made chewy oatmeal cookies. Oh, we cover, let's say, psychedelics, um, how to use MDMA to keep your marriage on sure footing, Islet is also married to author Michael Shavon. Real gratitude versus smug gratitude, uh, great books to read, and whether society allows women to age gracefully or if the whole concept is a farce. And jumpsuits. Yes, the secret behind jumpsuits. So you see, there's a lot to get to. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. I have as my guest the wonderful author of memoir fiction, LSD tripping, and uh, family life, <laughs> and also of the Netflix show, Unbelievable, Islet Waldman. And it's such a pleasure to have you here to bake cookies and talk about the world. I'm so stoked to be here because, um, first of all, because I'm obsessed with you because you were <laughs> a gateway drug into cookie obsession. I do hold you responsible for the 13 different kinds of cookies I made this Christmas that <laughs> went into 38 tins that I had someone else go and buy the tins and they were like massive tins. They were not small tins. So I had so many cookies to make. I spent six days making cookies, including pulling an all-nighter up to like 5 a.m. the the last night, frantically trying to finish my cookies before they like were too, you know, I didn't want them to ship more than a couple of days after bake. Anyway, your fault. It was insane. I just think it shows what a hard worker you are that you don't give up, right? You <laughs> didn't say, well, forget it. They're not like, getting those cookies. I don't recommend cookies. that, people. There's no reason <laughs> to take off 13 different kinds. You just get six and you get them right. <laughs> Which ones were your favorite out of that group? I really well, do need to know. Your brown sugar cookies are the best cookie on earth. I do have to, I have, I have to talk to you about them because like, I didn't get, they spread I know that really troubled me. Yeah. So I have to figure out why they spread. I have some questions for you. So those mm-hmm. I loved, I made um, a peppermint brownie cookie that I think Ooh. was from the New York times that had like a uh, peppermint, you know, candy canes, like- shards on top. That was a mm-hmm. huge hit. It was a massive hit. People love that. I did a chocolate crinkle that people really loved. And I, <clears throat> and I did Linzer cookies, which are my favorite. My favorite. Those are some of the highlights. Things that worked out that were, oh, and then I made, um, we're doing a, an adaptation of The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, my husband's Pulitzer Prize winning oh. novel for <laughs> Netflix, an eight episode limit. Pilot, who are you married to? Oh, I am married to the, <laughs> the struggling young writer, Michael Shabon. <laughs> oh, uh, right. The okay. Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, Wonder Boys, Moon Glow, and other wonderful works. And former showrunner of Star Trek Picard for a season. I wanted the people among the people on my list were all of our studio executives at. Um, oh, my God. Like CBS Studios, Paramount Studios. 
So I am and our agents and everything. So I baked gingerbread golems like I did. (laughs) And then instead of doing faces, I wrote the three letters that the has the golem has on his forehead. Emmet was fucking brilliant, I have to say. So those were the good ones. Some of them that worked less well. I did like a um, I did a sort of a three layer cookie, but I didn't really think it through. So like I should have used something to evenly tamp down the letters, the layers. So yeah. That it was, so it was kind of like, it offended my OCD that it was not, it had like ridges and like, you know, it just didn't look nice and neat and smooth across the top. I would refrigerate those before baking. Oh, I refrigerated too. everything. I was a compulsive refrigerator, which is one of the questions I want to ask you. I like freeze or froze every cookie dough, freeze mm. refrigerated every single dough before I bake them because I didn't want spread. And I still got spread on the brown sugar. It, I used European butter like Kerrygold. Is that why? I don't know. It could have been because the fat content was higher. Although yeah. I have to believe I've used it once because that's the kind of thing you would use in a shortbread cookie because you want the purest, okay. bestest, buttery flavor. Have you made them since is my other question. No, I haven't made them since. And I don't, I feel like they didn't spread that much last year when I made them, but I don't think I used, I bought 76 packages of Kerrygold butter. That's my girl. That cost. Yes, I I do. They should (laughs) contact me and give me a present. Um, But yeah. I think they should sponsor me. Yes. If they're out there listening. I think what because I'll do next year is I'll pre, I'll try like a few batches before I start baking with different kinds of butters because maybe that was it. Or maybe I need to do that for you because do I need it. to make a, I'll do the, do that. And my daughter's at college and she's very much like, she called us yesterday and, and we were like, my husband's lovely guy, but was like, we're baking cookies now. And she's like, what kind? And they were like her favorite kind of cookies. And it's not fair to tell the kids in college. My husband is always sending the kids cookies and stuff to college. I haven't weirdly, but he he'll send them like peanut butter. Oh, peanut butter blossoms. Everybody loves those. Although I don't like Hershey's chocolate. So I special ordered some like schmance chocolate, like drops. I can't remember the company and they didn't get here in time. I ordered them weeks ahead. And because of, you know, goddamn Biden and his, you know, not his sure. fault, but the <laughs> slowdowns at the chocolate I think, factory. I think it was actually Louis DeJoy who was sitting there. Eating I know them. he fucking sat on my chocolate drops. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So those were um, all great. They were all delicious. I will. Ne- I tried again to make spritz cookies and I am fucking out. Sorry. Torture. Those are just like sheer torture. So what's the point then? It's sort of my point, which is like, you. Could, why don't you make yourself a delicious cream cheese based cookie? And then you're going to get a delicious spritzy like tasting cookie. It'll be great. The yeah, whole, that. Oh. You know, roll it out, turn it into a little wreath yeah. that way. It hurts the gun. No good. And I learned some I definitely important things about rolling stuff out. I can't chill too much before I roll. And my friend, Andrew Sean Greer, who is the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Less, the novel, best novel in the world, got to read it. He came over and my gingerbread was too hard in the fridge. So I made him roll it out and he was like, sweat. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but uh, but I also roll everything out now between two pieces of parchment paper because I cannot stand the mess. It gets too so sticky. And then you just peel, flip, peel, cut. You're good. Yeah. And, you know, the trick is if you have to go, I mean, like you want to get going and you don't have your friend there to like beat the living daylights out of it like a caveman, you can um, take your I'm pointing to my rolling pin. Can you see? Everybody at home, I know, listening on this podcast can, but you take your, your rolling pin and you kind of pound at it, bam, 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 across and turn it, bam, 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 bam. And after about five or six bam, bam, bams, it's going to start to soften enough. Oh, that's good. So no, that you can roll it. I can do that next time. And it helps deal with yeah, the Sometimes after I'd rolled them flat, threw them in the fridge before I used the cookie cutters. And that was good too, because then they were really nice and stiff for the cookie cutters and didn't stick. Speaking of refrigeration, and before we get on to important things like why Andrew Giuliani is running for governor of New York, uh, sorry, my latest nightmare is you uh, wanted to make an oatmeal cookie, and fridge yeah, um, too. We um, the cookie dough that we made is really truly best when it's been refrigerated because it gives the oat time to absorb liquid, especially if you're using old-fashioned oats, the kind that take five minutes to cook as opposed to instant oats. And the difference, like I, you know, bake these cookies just after I make the dough because I have to eat cookies right away because I don't know, I have disease for cookies. And you can feel the oatmeal as you're chewing. And when you refrigerate them, it begins to soften. And the next day, the cookie is even better. The oatmeal cookie is all about moisture distribution. So if I, you say it, in the recipe, it says two and a half hours. That's probably not enough, right? But can Probably. I all them up now and stick them in the fridge and then... Yeah, or just try baking them off and seeing the texture of the oat now and then seeing how much better it is later. Well, I'm going to um, I'm gonna start balling with my cookie scoop, which I love. Another great innovation for um, this new... This, uh, you, you, cookie scoop is great. I love it. I'm using mine right now. I have two different sizes and I would like a, one more, I think. I'd like to do teeny tiny cookies and they, it was too, the, the one size, it was just too, like who, who has cookies that big? It was way too, <laughs> but the, um, the, the one inch I think is like perfect. This cookie also has, um, the way I make it has spices in it and chocolate chips. It does not have raisins because Islet does not like raisins. So we don't try, we try, try not to offend my guests with dried fruits. Also, um, I want to make a confession to you. I did not okay. use the cinnamon. I didn't use the nutmeg because I didn't. I realized I didn't have any, which is, I must have used it all up. But I didn't use it because I hate cinnamon. So I'm great. Flavoring with a little extra vanilla and oh, mm -hmm. and uh, orange. And then I put. I don't like chalk. I know I sound like a crazy person, but actually, I don't have that many things I don't like. But one of them is cinnamon, and one of them is chocolate. I only like milk chocolate, and even then, mm. only fancy Swiss milk chocolate really. <laughs> so, so I um I put in a ton of pecans. Oh, those are going to be so good, especially with the orange and the vanilla. I'm yeah, washing my hands, people. I always um, love the vanilla in everything because I feel like there's so do enough vanilla. I do believe in the road cup rule, which is always double vanilla and always triple garlic. But that's like my um, own issue. That's great. That's super smart. You know, right, something that's horrible has happened to me in the last just month. I think I might have developed a garlic intolerance <gasps> because I get like, or I might just be Jewish because I'll have I'll, I'll cook with a ton of garlic 
Michael does too. And then I've been having like, you know, that late night Jewish man thing where you're yeah. on TV and you're like, man. <laughs> and I, I've noticed that it seems to be connected to a garlic meal, which I really am not going to accept as tolerable. No, don't. Do you and have like a nice cup of hot like water with lemon in it? Yeah, I could do that. Or maybe not the citrus, just so you know how the Chinese drink hot water all the time. Yeah. yeah. And I always associate it with like old Jewish people drinking some hot water because yeah. just it helps the digestion, I think is what they would say. My my grandmother, whenever my grandmother would come to visit us, she would, um, she barely spoke, she didn't speak a lot of English. She was a new immigrant to this country, fresh. Hey, she was and really a fresh immigrant from where? The Jewish Pale Settlement? Uh, Vienna. With yeah. my, she came oh, with wow. my father and you her did. husband. My Most grandfather. Pre war. No, no. It was just 1939. Oh, thank God. The just in time. They were the just in time people. Yeah. I mean, you know, it did. Yeah. Uh, they were lucky because my great uncle, I, we think, helped the Bush family procure alcohol during Prohibition because he oh. ran an importing store, Italian import store. And so they, and he lived in Connecticut. And I think that was one of the reasons we were, they were able to get into the country. So I have the, something to thank the Bushes for. And that's really kind of where it is. At this point, the Bushes are seeming like, you know, a, a paragon of <laughs> evil, but at least not fucking horror shows. Um, I want to ask you. Grandmother, because, when she'd come over, what would she have? Oh, my grandmother. That's right. My grandmother, when she'd come over, like we'd, she'd, we'd eat dinner and then she and I would go sit in front of the TV she would turn on either Lawrence Welk or ice hockey. It was a strange dichotomy of viewing uh, pleasures. A little and watching ice hockey. I think she liked the speed, but she was like, go get me my pepper, my pepper bin. And I would go down to her drawer and she would always have a, one of those big plastic crinkly bags with the pink peppermint in it. You know, the dusty oh, crunchy yeah. ones. Yeah, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah, and and I could have one too, and she would have one, and we would digest after dinner. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Here's a question for you: So your grandmother made it out in time. So few, relatively, people did, and so many Jews just were like, "This can't happen here." I mean, how can this happen? We're so assimilated. We, you know, we all fought in World War One. We were officers. We're professors. We're doctors. I mean, you're in mm -hmm. Hungary. Something like 90% of stockbrokers were Jewish, 80%. I'm not, I don't know if I'm remembering these, like, but it's like up there of doctors were Jewish. They, it never occurred mm -hmm. for a minute that they weren't totally assimilated. So do you have that feeling like when you look at what's going on now, do you think, what am I, like, am I, am I the other guys? Am I not my grandmother? Am I not seeing the, you know, writing in the wall? Should we be getting the hell out of here? That was actually, I, I've been having those thoughts a lot lately. And I very distinctly, like a couple weeks ago, I was like walking the dog through my nice little neighborhood and thinking to myself, would these people save me? Would yeah, they give me a place in their that, attic? Yeah. That's the question and, you always ask. Nathan Englander has a short story about that. What we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank. Like, yes, every, every, every guy in my life, I'm like... Would you hide me in your attic? <laughs> That'll be our, that's the litmus test. And also I started thinking, well, how do we could, we could probably escape. They didn't have 
I mean, I had the stupidest thought. I was like, well, the, a lot of people didn't have so many cars then. And so they couldn't drive away. We could drive north or something. And then I thought, no, they'll stop us at the border. I just the idea that I was having those thoughts. It makes me, I'm grateful that my father's not around to like, I mean, both of my parents, like my mother basically killed herself watching MSNBC, right? You know, just railing at the television going, I can't believe this. I was so you, glad my dad lived yeah. to see um, Trump lose. That was really important to me. Yeah, my mother lived to see that too. And that was, oh no, she didn't. Oh my God, no, she didn't. I'm so sorry. But she was obsessed with Joe Biden. So from wherever people, dead people go, she's saying, at least it was my Joe. I love him so much. Except my mother did not talk like this. She sounded like a nice Anglican girl from the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is what she fancied herself. Um, you, <laughs> you were a long time ago in a d- distant galaxy. You were actually a federal prosecutor. Representing so- the bad guys, not... Not, you know, well, I would argue representing the less bad guys and the people on the other side, because this was the era I was a public defender in the era of Bill Clinton's hellacious, brutalizing war on drugs and the mandatory Uh sentences. And so my clients were going to jail for 20 years for carrying a box of methamphetamine, you know, to a car, like literally like, you know, the people they had carry the box. So yeah, it was a it was a bad time, and the people on the other side, the prosecutors, were monsters. But you were asking me, yes. But I was asking. Speaking of monsters, do you ever like? I know you've moved on to greater and gooder things, as we say in our bad English. But do you ever like with what happened in um, with the Trumps? Let's just call them by who they are. Donald's family. Do you ever like find yourself muttering to yourself and wondering what you would do if like you could prosecute them? Yeah. You know what I think about mostly because I was a public defender, I think about my clients and how differently they were treated. So here's an example. I had Mm. a client who was uh, uh, no criminal history um, guy who had a, you know, job, normal job. He, he and his wife had a child who was profoundly disabled Mm. on a ventilator, couldn't speak couldn't, you know, no, they weren't, no one was really sure how much brain activity she had, how aware she was, but she was, she, they, they could take her home from the hospital once they were trained in um, handling her vents and clearing her lungs and stuff. So they needed to build a room in their house that they could put half her in that was downstairs, that was easily accessible, that, you know, they could they could, I'm sorry, my cookie just got stuck in the cookie ball baller. So he went and got a second mortgage. And this was right out of the sort of, you know, mortgage fraud thing, you know, back in the um, 90s. Uh, So the mortgage broker basically had him overstate his income in order to get a larger mortgage. That is a federal crime. So overstates his income at this, the, you know, encouragement of the mortgage broker. And then when he defaults because the mortgage market collapses, the bank goes to the U.S. attorney and the government prosecutes him for mortgage fraud. They don't prosecute the mortgage broker who told him about the how to do it and why to do it and all that. So and he went to jail. Oh, to jail. A man with a severely disabled daughter who was 
who lied about one thing on a document, how much money he made, and not even by that much, at the encouragement of a banker. Oh, my God. And and Donald Trump is never going to go to jail. And the fraud that they committed every fucking day in that every fucking every fucking hour hour they were committing fraud and that's what i think about all the time i think about like this country even now which you know is just so biased against the poor and biased in favor of the rich and just in a way that is like i feel like it's like scrooge mcduck that's how (laughs) obvious and and right they don't even try not to be Scrooge McDuck, you know, that's so right. that is what I think about all the time. You know, that's the problem is there's this grotesque inequity that maybe it'll be this will be a positive and it'll raise more people's attention to bring more attention to the inequities in the justice system. And will there be a complete redoing of the justice system or, or something? People who care about the inequities in the justice system are all are already trying to do that. But the majority of people, the major, and I do think it's a majority. I think the majority of people obviously are Democrats. We know that like, mm-hmm. every, you know, the seven people who live in Wyoming get as many, you know, <laughs> the billion people who live in um, California, but that's, we know, so we know many more people are Democrats, but I think even among Democrats, the number of people who actually care about the poor, like actually care, is so oh. small that I just ugh, it just makes me freaking crazy. Can't bear it, especially so. when there's so much billionaire money going yeah, around. Like, right? You know, like I don't understand. You know, I've met Jeff Bezos. He was yeah. weird, but he didn't seem like an evil man. You know, like so. What the fuck is he doing? I don't know. What I don't he, know how you have that much like, money. Why is he? I mean, I, I don't know. I met the Google guys, too. They seemed downright nice. The only man, I think, who's actually doing good works. Well, maybe not the only, but you know, there's George Soros and there are people. Who yeah. Are like, and then, well, you're connected to George Soros as a Jew, aren't you? I know. I, I well, get I regular e- emails from him. Yes. We have that cabal. You know, I'm a, I'm a member. You yeah. can tell I'm really making it. Thanks. Yeah, but I like Reed Hastings impresses me, the guy who runs Netflix. I feel like he does good work in the world, but so few of them do, you know, and they can afford to do so much. It was like Elon Musk. And when Bezos got divorced and I can't remember her name all of a sudden, I don't remember anybody's Mm -hmm. name. Um, And she immediately started giving away money. Clearly she had been just waiting to do that the whole time. Yeah, that was a that was a huge statement on her part. I think as her first move as a single woman was to give away some of the money. Wouldn't you love um, to, be able to do that? Oh, I'd love to. Do, well, like I, I would love to be able to do that and to have that much money and figure out what to do with it. Um, yeah. And one of them would not be to have a giant yacht. But anyway, yeah, um, no, no. I and know, I must definitely get a little yeah. sailboat, like a little wooden sailboat. That'd be nice. That's about yeah. ten grand. I get that. Yeah, and you wouldn't feel so bad about the mooring costs or anything like that. You have to disassemble a bridge, an an ancient, incredibly important to a culture bridge. All right, I'm putting. (laughs) You know, these oats absorb. Will these oats absorb flavor in the freezer, or should I put this dough in the fridge? I would put it in the fridge, but how long do you want them? 
for? That'd be nice. Put half in the fridge and half in the freezer. Isn't that a nice Solomonic answer? No, that's not what I do, babe. I eat four a day. I put all of them in the freezer eventually, except for four. And then because we are empty nesters, we have four kids, but they're all gone. Our oldest daughter is about to move to New York, looking for a job in publishing. You know anybody? You know anybody? You know anybody? Um, our son is living in LA with his girlfriend and is the only kid I've ever heard of who is, I'm going to brag for a second as a mom. He, he majored in electronic music at Bard. Right. So you're a parent. You're like electronic music at bar. Okay. <laughs> oh, you love honey. honey. Uh, and then, uh, but, but he actually has a job doing what he learned and is making money. I'm putting my coffee in the microwave, which I do all day. And he's actually earning a living making music. He has his first credit is on a Sia song. He's just brilliant. Well, anyway, that should be a lesson to all parents right there. All parents don't get so freaked out because they they'll be OK. And then my young my third kid is at Vassar loving it. And then my mm. my youngest is at a boarding school called Northfield Mountain. I know it well. Yes. Yeah. And I'm just like squeezing everything in this fridge to the back. Well, yes. Everyone. Isla Walnut has opened up her double door refrigerator. And oh. putting things inside it. Yeah, it things in. <laughs> um, anyway, so he's at boarding school. So we're empty nesters, right? It's the most glorious thing on earth. It's so wonderful. I live in fear that they'll come home. Um, <laughs> when I came home COVID, it was actually turned out to be really lovely. We were very lucky. My dad died during COVID, but not of COVID. Michael lost a friend in the very beginning. But after that, we were very, very lucky. So, and having the kids home was wonderful. But what's even more wonderful is not having the kids home. And we are, oh my God, we're so happy. So what do you appreciate the most about them not being home? Just that we get to be together. When I describe our life to you, you're going to be like, Elida, are you in your 90s? This is what we do. (laughs) I wake up at about five o'clock in the morning lately. I didn't always do that. I start work early, early, early um, because we're trying to crash these scripts. The scripts and, were unbelievable. No, these are the scripts for Cavalier and Clay. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes. Okay. So we're, we're frantically writing those scripts. So I get up really early and then Michael works at night. Michael works from about 11 o'clock at night till about five in the morning. So we tend to pass in the morning and like, blah, blah, blah. and then he, when he wakes up at around 12 or one, we have a nice little breakfasty lunchy thing. Does it involve cottage cheese? Because if you're if you're 90, it involves cottage cheese. It has occasionally involved cottage cheese. <laughs> I will mix cottage cheese into my Israeli salad. Cottage cheese, tahina, and lemon. Very just and a fried egg. It's very tasty. Well, that sounds very good, actually. And then uh and then we'll, you know, work out or whatever, and we'll cook uh, cook a nice dinner together. We alternate usually who cooks. And then I will bake. I'll preheat the oven while we're eating dinner. And I will bake four cookies and we'll each have two cookies and a little mm-hmm. chamomile tea. He'll have a caffeinated beverage. Yeah. And, um, and then half the time we will, you know, go watch a Netflix or something. And then the other half of the time we will listen to an audiobook and craft. Yes, we will. He's oh. like, 
he's obsessed with all these like DIY things. So first he got into assembling these little electronic, he like made himself a computer and he, with these kits and he made himself a music player. And then he got super into, and he was soldering things with these goggles. (laughs) And then he got into here, here's his little like kitchen home workbench. Oh yeah. Okay. And then getting, um, yep. And then he got into, he, he got this, this 3d printer that came in pieces and he assembled it himself. It took like 20 hours. And then he, he designs and 3d prints things for, and then he got into like buying old matchbox cars and um, (gasps) renovating them, renovating. What would you call that? When you fix up refurbishing. Yeah. It's refurbishing old max matchbox car. So, and then one of the cars that he got, was a 1974 Pontiac Firebird Esprit a la Jim Rockford from the Rockford And then he designed, it's taking him forever, and 3D printing Jim Rockford's trailer, which he will then paint in appropriate cost. So he does that. And then (laughs) I, right before the election, like I would just be going nuts because we'd be listening to an audiobook when you don't have anything to do with your hands. So I am... I started embroidering fuck Trump on things just like, <laughs> and then I kind of moved on and I taught myself to embroider and I'm not crafty. My husband's super crafty. The kids and my husband were always like making friendship bracelets or, you know, pot holders or drawing. I can't do any of that, but I kind of fell in love with embroidery and now, and I started embroidering bigger and bigger projects. And now I'm embroidering my daughter's chuppah. What? Yeah. It's huge. It's seven feet by seven feet. It's all flowers. And it is, it's going to be a full year. And God bless my machatana, which is the word you have in Yiddish that you don't have in English. And it's the word for your child's in-laws. It's a great word because we're friends with these people. I have no word for them. She, um, she had me send it to her and she and her mom, her, she and her sister and her daughter, and sometimes her mom are taking like a couple months to do some more embroidery. And then they'll send it back to me. That's the that? most beautiful thing. And it doesn't say fuck Trump on it. You it doesn't, although it could. <laughs> I think that would be so appropriate. No, it says, which means I am my love and my love is mine. Surrounded by these beautiful flowers. And then um, we're making these a patch that says Sophie and Michael. My daughter says, soon to be husband's name is Michael, like her dad. And, okay. the day, and as every kid gets married, we will put a patch for like each kid, sew it on. And we're sewing all our names. We're embroidering all our names into the chuppah itself, like made by. Yeah, it's very cool. That is an amazing project and very inspirational. It's really, I love, I love that we're doing this. It's real. And it's such a nice connection between the two families. They're Catholic, but I was talking to Michael's sister and I said, you know, Sarah, we got to find you a dude because you're hundred percent getting married under this chuppah. I don't care if it's a Catholic <laughs> priest can duck. <laughs> it's all like, I'm sure that's how Jesus got married. Well, he's never got, anyway, I want to show you this. This is my husband's thing. I don't know. Oh my God. That's what Michael has. That's what Michael yeah. has. What does yeah. he do well, with? He started making models. And the thing that we're all squealing about here, people on, on your, on my podcast is a um, headband that you can wear that has a light and magnifying glasses that make you look like, I don't know, sort of a possessed we frog with a thyroid that. problem. We used to use that for lice picking. Oh, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you like, do you remember that period of time yes, when everybody had lice all the time? And the first day of school was like a lice check. And when they, with the oh. advent of the lice professional lice pickers, which started with Hasidic Jewish women, God bless them. Yep. And then became a business. My life was improved so substantially. It was the best money I ever spent. Oh my God. My daughter, my, my third kid, my daughter had waist length, bright blonde hair. And I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I'm a Jewish woman. I am not going to cut a child's waist-length blonde hair. We're going to mm-hmm. hold on to that as long as possible. I had to, and that color hair is the same as lice, by the way. Yeah, exactly. With all due respect, Egg. that's my son. Oh, my son horrible. had the same. We all have that color hair. Cool. So I am. Um, what color um, is your hair? Lice colored. Lice colored. <laughs> but yeah, so just the, um, a number of times she got lice. It was just nuts. <laughs> After a while, she was just. She went to school every day with tea tree oil and braids. Yes, yes, tea tree oil all around. And I have a feeling that anybody who's listening to this at home, if they ever experienced life, is now itching their head because I, I cannot, I cannot hear the word without starting to scratch. I got it. Um, one. And we were sitting in a movie theater. I felt so bad. And I was like, what is going on? And I scratched my head. And usually there are only a couple of little actual louse on a head. And they were every fingernail had a crawling creature in it. And I was like, Michael, we have to leave. And I I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I am scratching my head. Um, We're both scratching. (laughs) Stay with us, people. We promise we're going to stop talking about lice. Probably move on to cookies, move on to cookies, but also I want to move on to LSD, which you had some intimate experience with all completely legal. No, none uh, of it remotely legal, none of it remotely, but you did get yourself legal counsel. Is that true? Explain yeah. to people what your book was about for those who missed out on it and who are going to go out and buy it after this because it's okay. fascinating. So I, I, like I said, I was a public defender during the drug war. And then I did drug policy reform work at the Drug Policy Alliance, which George Soros funded and God bless him. And um, <laughs> and so I, I was sort of involved. I was very involved in like I knew a lot about drugs, drug policy, what was happening. And so um, I have a mood disorder and it became treatment resistant, which is very common. And I was looking for an alternative therapy and I happened to have a book sent, like just come into my house, you know, when your writer books come into your house and I was leafing through it and it talks about microdosing with LSD, which is microdosing is taking a tiny quantity, a sub perceptual quantity, usually 10 micrograms as compared to about a hundred to 200 micrograms, which is an actual trip your balls off dose mm-hmm. and taking that every few days. And it improves concentration. It's good. The theory is that it's good for mood. I don't know if any of that is true or whether I just experienced the best placebo effect in the history of the world. But when I, the first day I took it, I had been experiencing a, a, a real suicidal depression. Like I was actually counting pills in my bathroom. Like how many things can I take? But, you know, it turns out that the most dangerous thing in your medicine cabinet is Tylenol. We don't have that anymore. Get rid of your Tylenol, people. It's just yeah. not taking you. More people um, die of Tylenol overdoses. Way. Yeah, in a horrible way. So, um, and it worked stupendously. Stupendously. Oh so I decided to do a one-month trial and, and see if, it, if, these, if it's sustained. And then I started writing. I just kept a journal basically. And then my journal kind of spun off into like 
talking about the history of psychedelics, the history of drug policy in America. So it became this like, it was about my experience. It was about drug policy and the history of drug um, policy reform and the history of drug criminalization and psych- the psychedelic movement and the history of psychedelics and the medical uses of psychedelics and also my marriage. And um, and I published that book. It's called A Really Good Day. It's so good. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it really was life altering. And I had no experience with psychedelics when I started. I had once at Wesleyan University, I can't believe I managed to make it through that institution only doing this once. I <laughs> Tiny quantity of magic mushrooms. All I remember is being on a tire swing and being like, oh, this is so much fun. <laughs> that was it. I had never done any psychedelics. I have since done a full on therapeutic, um, mediated with a therapist psychedelic trip that I can talk about if you want. But um, yeah. the mushroom was really amazing. And I don't do it anymore because I can't guarantee myself a legal, a, either a legal or a, an effective source like so much of drug because drugs are le- illegal it's all adulterated and there's fentanyl and it's bad but and because it's illegal i was very careful i hired a lawyer mm-hmm. and had him evaluate my my book there are many things that came out the truth is what we were concerned with was not so much criminal prosecution frankly because i'm a um well-to-do white lady and we very rarely get prosecuted that's the way the criminal justice in america works yes i've seen so, that yes yeah, you know, it's not, but I was afraid of having my kids taken away from me, which does happen. So, I mean, women who've used medical marijuana have lost custody of their children. So uh, that was really my concern to kind of protect that from happening. Yeah. So that's what I did. And it was pretty amazing. And um, I think microdosing, you know, there's some research that shows that it, it's more placebo than actual, but they're also anecdotal. A lot of people have had an anecdotal experience that it works really well. And you know, if it's placebo and that and it's working that well, who cares? What What is it like to do it with under the supervision of a therapist? Well, that was really intense. So I found a therapist. I'm not a huge super fan of her because she gave me way too much. For those of you who know anything about mushrooms, I did not. She gave me four fresh from the garden stems and caps. And then either four or six, I can't remember, dried stems. It's a huge dose. So the first thing that happened was I was vomiting black rats. Like actually, like the, everything that happens when you're tripping, it feels like it's actually happening. And it feels like it's happening for all eternity. So like I felt, I felt them in my chest. I felt them in my throat. I felt oh. them in my mouth and I saw them drop onto the ground. That was lovely. And there were other like really hard things that happened. Like my entire ego and super ego fractured into a tiny shards. And I was trying to hold it because I knew I'd never be sane again unless I could put it together. But it was like on a million piece puzzle made of glass. That was a scary moment. But there are also really incredible and important things. Like, and when you, anytime you recount a psychedelic trip, you sound like a fucking idiot. But I'm going (laughs) to do it anyway. It's so banal. But like, I felt like I understood the concept of gratitude for the first time in my life that up until that moment, I had seen gratitude through the lens of self-interest, that it was about making myself feel good, like a gratitude journal to make yourself feel good. It was about being sort of a smugness to, oh, I'm such a good person. But then I really understood the concept of gratitude on like a heart level. That was really, and that has sustained 
my, not all the time. Like I still find myself like making my gratitude journal to like make myself feel better, but still. Yeah. And it, it, there was things about my relationship with my daughter that I really dug into that I had this, again, it sounds like the least profound insight in the world, but if, if when you feel it on like a soul, oh, did I really say that level? Yeah. Um, that my daughter was not me. And that if she was having a hard time, I wasn't having a hard time. And my job was to be supportive and loving and watch her live her life and not try to control it. Or, and, and like that, that feeling of hyper-identification gets in the way of being supportive and loving and letting them live their lives. So that was yeah. like, and then there was one more. So I, you're blindfolded, you're lying there blindfolded. And the therapist was sitting in a corner of the room and I could hear her sewing and superimposed on her body were thousands and thousands and thousands of women sewing going back to the beginning of time, like the beginning of when, when we began to sew with bones or whatever. (laughs) And um, I felt this sense of the um, profound connection of motherhood and that I will say this is not sustained that improved my relationship <laughs> with my own mother for a while. Although that's a, that's a toughie. And that yeah. was, I'm going to need like another three, four, 200 psychedelic trips to <laughs> that relationship into some kind of perspective, but it's actually really great. And that will be legal soon. I really do believe that. And, um, and I think that's really worth doing. If you're experiencing going in with a good therapist, with someone who's very careful and also going and knowing that it could be really difficult, that the experience could be upsetting and that could be difficult. And it could, you know, you could have a bad trip and that's a, like to say that oh, a bad trip, but it could be really hard and it can sort of wake up shit. So like, you have to be, understand that that's coming and then go in with the intention. Like, what are you going to talk about? What are you going to think about? And it can be really life altering. The other experience that I highly recommend that will hopefully be legal soon is um, MDMA, what we call Mm -hmm. Molly or Mm -hmm. um, ecstasy. And that is, there's tremendous amount of research. Molly is incredibly effective at treating PTSD. It is the most effective treatment modality for PTSD by an order of magnitude. You know, rock war vets who are treatment resistant, who've tried everything else, have success with um, MDMA. And um, rape victims, same thing. And my husband and I use that as kind of a marriage tune-up every year or two. We'll do... How does that work? Well, we don't do it with someone because we know how to do it, honestly. Right. But we get our drugs, we test them. You have to test any drug you're going to take in your system. You can get a test on Amazon, but the better place to get it is at dancesafe.org. Dan, D-A-N? Yeah, like dance, dance safe. Oh, dance safe, dance safe. It started as, as if I was going to a rave. Yeah. yeah. So they would have a little table at raves. Let us test your drugs. And you peel off a little bit of the drug, the pill, and you dissolve it in water and you test it for fentanyl. You test it for to make sure it's actually MDMA, not methamphetamine, which it is more often than not, and anything else. So we test our drugs and then we do this and we spend six hours, anywhere from three to six hours. I was more in the beginning, but MDMA, you get used to it. Do you develop a tolerance, even if you're only doing it once every year or two somehow? Interesting. Yep. And we talk about our marriage and we talk about why we love each other and how we love each other. And what MDMA does is it, it, it operates on memory. So the best way to understand it 
is that it kind of disengages emotion from memory and allows you to experience them each independently. So you can think about a difficult thing, a thing that would be tied to an emotional response that would make you not want to think about that, like say an IED attack in Iraq or a horrible fight in your marriage. And you can think about it with a kind of neutrality and acceptance because you don't have the pain getting in the way. And that pain is experience, you know, you, you experience a, a tremendous influx of serotonin and you can thus, you have all these warm and loving feelings. So for us, it kind of brings us back to that first period of infatuation and, you know, yeah, that flesh. Yeah. And we talk about like difficulties in our marriage from a place of real acceptance and love. And, and it, it is, I really do credit that, you know, when you have a lot of kids, marriage is hard. And I credit that with the six with, I credit our, the success of our marriage with to, to that in many ways. Yeah. Cause it is a challenge if you're investing so much time in your kids, which us, you know, lawnmower helicopter parents, whatever you want to call us do that the two of you fight about that. Are you, you know, you disagree or you just don't want to have anything to do with anybody because you've given so much energy into your kid. Right. I've read about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Did your cookies um, come out of the oven? My cookies are out of the oven. Show me. Here's one. Here's one now. They turn the most beautiful the color. Right shape too. They're like they're like brown and and they're beautiful they're not, because they didn't spread too much. They didn't spread too much. They shouldn't. And they also the secret to this cookie. Because I long hated making oatmeal cookies, and then like a day later, like chewy oatmeal cookies, and you're like the next day you're like crunch. It's not chewy, so I added honey to them. I substituted honey for white sugar, and that adds a huge amount of moisture. It doesn't add any honey flavor, but it just makes them very warm. And the orange, it has orange zest in it, so it adds a really nice. I don't know. I find these almost. I could eat them all day long. They're just very comforting cookies. Right. Um, is, is it, does MDMA help for couples that work together? You and your husband yeah, work well, together and being creative is very hard. Yeah. Like we, you know, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes we work together phenomenally well. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's a little, you know, we, we have, look, when you can argue with like, you know, nobody, Arguing with your spouse is like arguing with yourself. You are not, it's, it's mean, it can be bad. Mm-hmm. So like having that in the work context is not good. But on the other hand, you have a kind of incredible shorthand that's really exciting. And like, for example, as crazy as this sounds, I think in the shower. And so we take a shower together and come up with all sorts of <laughs> harder now in the Bay area where you have to have like a two minute shower. But, um, but like, you know, that's that you can, you can't do that with your work partner. No, um, I mean, you could, but yeah, I, I feel like right. maybe we could use that right now. I mean, the thing about Hollywood that's so stressful and challenging and is that you never really know if you're going to get, if you're going to go to series, if you're going to, if your project's going to succeed. Yeah. yeah. It, it's not like you work three years on a novel, you have a novel at the end of that. You work three years on a TV series, you could have nothing. And yep. that is really, and we were at Showtime and we had a series order 
And in the end, and we had a big penalty that they had to pay us. And in the end, they decided they'd rather pay us a penalty than make Cavalier and Clay. Oh. And it was really depressing and sad. And we'd worked so hard and we were just kind of like, come on, guys. But, you know, Showtime changed and they wanted different things. And one of them was not a period story about the founding of superheroes set against the backdrop of the Holocaust. Go figure. I mean, it has to me, it has all the elements because it's such a good right? book. Yeah. Um, so hopefully Netflix will feel differently, but, but like, that's hard. That's hard. And you're both disappointed and you're so like one of you isn't in a place of stability and like equipose while the other's freaking out. You're both kind of despairing. And so that can be hard. But on the other hand, like, do you have similar, do you have similar ways of being in despair or different? Oh, like sure. different reactions. Michael's attitude is always, it's going to be okay. And my attitude is always, this is the worst thing that ever happened and it will never be okay. And we might as well just pack it in now because the world is a terrible place full of despair and tragedy. Right. So that's, that's fun to be around, you know, (laughs) he loves that. I I cut you off and I'm sorry to have done that, but I, I wanted to get a sense of despair. Which is a very strange segue to just one other thing. I, I mean, I'd like to talk to you about about 482 things, but this is, I asked this for kind of selfish reasons, um, which is you, I, I was looking at articles that you'd written in what we call the Wayback Machine. And one of them was, I guess, for Harper's Bazaar, maybe, and it was about aging gracefully. And you were 44 at the time. Now you're 45. Uh, but you're 44 at the time, and I'm kidding. You're a little older than that, but you're the same age I am, basically. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit younger, but not much. But you wrote that at the time, and you're like, I'm into this aging gracefully idea. And I wondered if, you're, if your no, thoughts I, about I, aging gracefully I, I have was, changed. My, I was my most beautiful, my most in shape, and probably my happiest at age 44, 45. So it was really easy to age gracefully. It was like, what? I am going to be graceful about it. <laughs> I mean, I look at pictures of myself then and I'm like, oh, wow, I was hot. But now that you I'm, are beautiful and for all the people who are not looking at you directly. I gained 20 pounds during COVID and I have like the usual female body image dysmorphia and body despair. And I, you know, now I have wrinkles and now I have jowls and I am not for the, it's, I think part of it's COVID like fuck zoo, man. It's like, I don't look at myself normally. I just go about my day and this like staring at like all I can look, I'm like, is that a little sad? Yeah, exactly. I didn't think this Bra really isn't doing anything for me. Oh, also, as I so I am not. I'm having it. I'm having a grace problem right now. Plus, I also feel like I've been working a long time for this specific professional thing, mm-hmm. which is like I wrote novels. I'm really proud of my novel, Love and Treasure. I think is among the best things I have ever, probably the best thing I've ever written. Include especially the last section which takes oh. place in Prague before World War One. which if you read nothing of mine, read that last third of- uh, I recommend it. Yeah. And so I've had, you know, I've objectively, although it doesn't feel that way to me because I have such imposter syndrome, I've had success in that field. But what I really want to do is create and run my own TV show. And I've been working towards that for 10 years. I've sold a shit ton of pilots. 
I have developed a lot of shows. Unbelievable was nominated for Emmys and all, uh, you know, all that stuff, but I wasn't the show runner, which is what I really want to do. And so I feel this sense of like the clock ticking. And the truth is, which I don't think I understood at 44, is that this world does not like women in their 50s and 60s. It really doesn't. And, you know, call me a whiner, go to hell. Right now, especially, <laughs> especially we have a moment where, where the, that kind of misogyny and ageism is considered perfectly perfectly okay okay boomer i'm not a boomer fuck you <laughs> fuck you <laughs> and, and i even think like the whole karen there are a lot of really racist people that we call karens and they're disgusting and there's one in oakland this woman who lost her mind over people barbecuing in a place where you barbecue but that meme that meme is a is a misogynist meme and you see it over and over again and it's like oh everybody on twitter thinks it's just fine to attack a woman in her 50s and you get kudos for it. And the same thing happens professionally. Women in their 50s are more expensive because they're more experienced and they have, you know, they are their leadership positions and they are routinely fired in favor of women or, you know, it's like one to one. You don't get fired for a man. Like there's the female track, right? And then yep. I find it really enraging. And here you're about to get all sorts of hate mail. Young women today <laughs> are so disdainful of the women who came before them. And like, you know, I'm looking in the wake of Roe v. Wade, it's about to be overturned. Just oh, so. Yeah, yeah. And in the wake of the most recent Supreme Court decisions, you see all these younger women attacking us. And I'm like, fuck you. Do you know how hard we worked? Do you know how we marched and we worked and we donated and we were there with Pompano? What have you done besides fucking tweet? Like, that's all you're doing. And you're accusing us of losing you the right to choice, you ingrate piece of shit. But that's even if they're aware of it. And that right. was one of that's- the scariest things is I went, I mean, I, I have the most wonderful students that I teach. I love them to bits, but we talk about the news all the time. And when this thing happened with the Supreme Court going, oh yeah, I did something with Roe v. Wade in Texas. I said, so what happened today in class? And they were like, I don't know what. I was like, have you guys heard of Roe versus Wade? And one person in the class had heard of it. One. And it was a class of 24 people. All of them, 18, 19. And so I, sh- I don't even think they know what they're missing as part yeah, of it. I think that's part of it. But then like this conversation, 10,000 people will hear it and be like, oh, fuck you, Boomay. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? You are a misogynist and you are ageist and you are despicable. And this, and, and like, you know, I'm not saying respect your elders. I'm saying have some consciousness of your bias. Look at your privilege because youth is a privilege. So there you go. That's my rant. And that's why I'm finding it harder to age right now. But I also think like the way to handle this is to do new things. Like I do think, so like, Right before we got on the, the Zoom, I'm learning French because we're going to go to Paris for a month. At some point, just a couple of weeks ago, I was like, remember we said we were going to go to Paris and live in Paris? And why are we fucking living in Paris? Mm-hmm. So I just went online and I found an apartment. I'm like, we're going to Paris on March 16th. We're doing like, and, and so I'm like, and then I'm, I haven't had, I haven't taken French since ninth grade. I'm going to take some French. 
So I do these like Zoom French classes. And I think that's the trick to aging gracefully is to constantly be challenging yourself to do new things and not stay in the same rut. Like embroidery, like sitting quietly in the evenings while your husband does his hobby, listening to an audiobook and embroidering. Very exciting. New thing. I mean, every time I bake something, it's something new and different, right? So I, I, that sort of thing. But also like everything you said totally and utterly resonates with me. It's something I've been thinking about way too much as I like try and embark upon, oh, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. There's always that fear that someone's going to, no matter how much they like your idea, you're this, you're that. It's like, oh, but you're a 54-year-old middle-aged woman. We really don't want to have anything to do with you. And it's one of the last, you know, it's one of those things that you can openly say. Yep. Totally. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, shut up old way, you know, you hear that all the time. Sit down, old lady. Um, Okay, boomer. But, you know, I mean, I think about that all the time. I mean, like, I do really feel like more and more people don't want to hear what older people have to say. I have this amazing I'm going to name drop. Sorry, but I have to give her credit for this. So I was at a party and talking to Frances McDormand. Yes, I was. <laughs> you too. Did she have some insight into this? I would like yes, to know what she thinks. She doesn't do plastic surgery and she doesn't dye her hair. And she's very, um, she's, she's embracing her age. And she said, think like, listen, back in the day, you walked into a room and you looked at the people and you recognized who the wise ones were because they had white hair or gray hair and they had wrinkles on their face. And if you, you need, if you needed their wit, if you needed wisdom, you knew who to go to. And now we've like filled in our wrinkles and dye our hair. I dye my hair. Sorry, I do. It's okay. So do I. COVID when I look like a true nutcase. <laughs> I do highlights everyone. I don't actually dye it. I don't really have that many grays. I feel very defensive. Yeah, go on. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I heard that and I thought like, I thought two things. One, I wish I lived in a world where anybody gave a shit about the wisdom of older women, but also mm-hmm. like what a great way to live and what a great, I mean, what confidence to have to be like, I know that I have this to offer. So I'm going to look like the person who can offer this. And uh, she's kind of my, the way she moves through the world is the way I want to be. Um, also, she's really thin and looks great in a jumpsuit. So that's a goal. Oh, wow. Yeah. Someone actually gave me a jumpsuit for Christmas a couple oh, years I back. I need jumpsuits. I love them. I, I can't do it. I'd be mostly because I don't have any space between my grandmotherly like breasts and my waist. Me too. Me either. But what you have to do is you have to take them to the tailor and have the waist raised. Oh, thank you, everybody. Yeah, we're not, we're not just learning about cookies here, folks. Yeah, we're learning secrets with jumpsuits. Psychedelics. <laughs> we got it all going on. I would love to talk to you forever and a day, especially about the Francis McDormand thing, because the first, my first reaction when you said it was when you explained her story, we're like, oh, but they look for the wise people in the room. I'm like, nobody's looking, you know, ooh, no one's assuming yeah. I'm wise, right? Yeah. So otherwise. they're not. Everyone seems to think their wisdom comes from like some dipshit on TikTok. I'm gonna say somebody on TikTok. By the way, I, 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 I had a whole TikTok addiction. <laughs> loved it. I once scrolled for three and a half hours, promptly like fucked up my thumbs. I had to get steroid <laughs> shots to um, cure them. 
And then my son, as a result of this, I couldn't type. I was like, I couldn't pick up any, you know, it turns out opposable thumbs are, you know, critically important to get through the world. Mm-hmm. My son um, took my phone and put a, 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 this thing on TikTok where I can't download it <laughs> without a secret code that only he knows. <laughs> so I'm off TikTok. But, but even so, like, you know, to use TikTok as your primary source of like news in the world, that's stupid. So I would like to start a TikTok cooking channel if anybody would like to help me edit that. Um, That'd be great. There's so many people who don't know how to cook on TikTok. I've done so many TikTok recipes and been like, that wasn't any good. Do you have any memorable ones that are so bad? I watched them like my son tried to make there's this crispy potato thing that takes two days to make. And my son with like duck fat and all this stuff. And my son tried to make it for Thanksgiving and he did everything right. And he ended up with like a mass of disgusting crap in the fryer that we had to throw away. And that was our primary potato at Thanksgiving. Dinner. And thank God, Deb Kopakin showed up <laughs> with a huge thing of delectable mashed potatoes, or we would have had our Thanksgiving no potato destroyed. On our next episode of You and Me Together Talking About Food, um, I'll teach you how to make proper English roast potatoes, which don't take that much time and are crispy and delicious. What's the secret? The secret is you boil them first and you put a pan, like a baking sheet that has a rim, obviously, into a hot oven with oil. And so then you take your parboiled, sort of smashed potatoes and put them into that hot oil. Toss them around? You don't have to, but you can toss them around because the oil's really hot and it's kind of scary at that point. Like how much oil in the pan? I'd say about a quarter inch, half an inch. Oh my God. And then you, so then you, they cook and then you flip them over and they cook longer, but it takes a long time and patience. What's the, to what's develop. the you're at? Um, I usually do about 375. Okay. I'm going to try these in the next couple of days. I'll be back. I'll get so back good. to you. We have to do this again. This is my favorite podcast ever. ever. <laughs> this is my favorite time ever. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm going to... You didn't bake yours yet, did you? No. I, I do want to know what you think because you do have very particular, in a good way, everyone, taste. Yeah, I will I will get back to you. You should wa- follow us on Twitter and I'll tweet my... I'll tweet You'll my definitely do it. Response. Have a wonderful time. And thank you so much for coming and being on the show today. And I'm going to go do something youthful. Do you think imposter syndrome has something to do with this idea that I don't think I'm wise? Uh-huh. Doctor. I think we all <laughs> suffer from it. I think we suffer from it terribly. Okay, so the next episode will be imposter syndrome and really good roasted potatoes. Please join us. Please leave a review in the Apple Store to help keep this pod afloat. And please subscribe to my Substack at marissarodkopf.substack.com to help keep me afloat. And please, oh, please, if you would, leave a review, tell your friends, and keep your mask on. Thank you so much, and have a great week.